Hey everybody, welcome to the Next Level Sunday interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. This week, we have an interview with Tristan Snell, author of the book Taking Down Trump, 12 Rules for Prosecuting Donald Trump by Somebody Who Did It Successfully. Tristan was at the New York AG's office during the Trump University case, and we have a lot of coverage, and we talk a little bit about the cases that are going on now, but I thought it'd be interesting to do a deep dive on going back to that Trump University case, refreshing our memory, what can we learn from that, what might be politically salient from that, so Tristan and I got into that, as well as a little bit on what's happening now at the Trump trials. For more on the Trump trials, make sure you are checking out George Conway Explains It All to Sarah Longwell, if you have not subscribe to that feed. They have a weekly rundown of what's happening in the Trump cases. And, uh, you know, for those of you that heard the news about Charlie, we are definitely going to miss him. And we've got news coming down the pike on what's going to be happening with Charlie's podcast that I think you guys are going to be super excited about. So stay tuned for all of that. Appreciate you very much. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Up next, Tristan Snell. But first, my pals at Acid Tongue. Peace. Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Sunday interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. I'm here with Tristan Snell, author of Taking Down Trump, 12 Rules for Prosecuting Donald Trump by Somebody Who Did It Successfully. Uh, By the time this is out, that book will be on bookshelves, so you can go check it out. Tristan, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start, we're taping this on Monday, and there was a great interview that Gene Carroll did this morning uh, with Robbie Kaplan, who I've also had on the show for an awesome interview, if people missed that, on CNN. And she spoke, I think, about something that's very relevant to the point of your book, um, about how about how Donald Trump is very beatable. So I, I want to just listen to her comments uh, really quick and, and kind of get your reaction. And soon since uh, he assaulted me in, uh, in the dressing room and um, preparing to see him was terrifying. Uh, The days leading up, as Robbie uh, brought me around stronger and stronger, um, it was so, uh, I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten, I couldn't think, I lost my language when she was trying to prepare me to go, uh, to do testimony in front of Donald Trump. And then when, we were in the courtroom, and Robbie went to the lectern. She said, good morning, Eugene. Please state your name and spell it for the jury, for the court. And there he was, and he was nothing. He was just no power. He had, he was Zero. That was, it, I was flabbergasted. And from then on, we just sailed through. She brought me in. She said, say your name. And I just looked at Robbie, saw he was nothing, and it came out from there. Did you, did you make eye contact with him? Many times. And what was that like? I'm t- it, he's an emperor without clothes. It's like looking at nothing. It was like nothing. Tristan, I mean, isn't that basically in line with what you're writing about? Yeah, the kicker is we just actually have to speak up and keep pushing and insist that the emperor does not actually have any clothes and that he's committed a lot of awful misdeeds, too. 
exactly. Yeah, I mean, just keep pushing. This is yeah. the key point of your book that it's it's like it's doable, right? Like taking yes. him on is doable, and it's just for too long for a variety of reasons. People were afraid to do it. I mean, what was your? Um, I want to get into the Trump University stuff in particular, mm-hmm. which is kind of what spurred all this and your work on that at, at, in the New York AG's office. But from the biggest picture, like, is that your takeaway? Like, what are the what are the ways in which that manifests? You know, I think that it's the you know my book is done up as a playbook with twelve rules for how to beat him, but there's also kind of what's his playbook, right? right. What does he do to actually prevail? And a lot of it comes down to intimidation, uh, destruction of reputations, a lot of counterattacking. That's one bucket. Another bucket is around delaying, coming up with diversions and distractions. That's like another big bucket. And then really another one of the big ones for a long, long time was that he would co-opt people. He would either figure out how to get them on his side or get to his get to that person's inner circle I think that was especially effective for him with elected prosecutors, uh, where he could actually get to that politician and get them turned away from from him and go target somebody else. And then we could see very interestingly timed campaign donations, or that lo and behold, they came out as a strong supporter of so-and-so's bid for higher office, whatever. That was really how it manifested itself for a very long time. But then you look at Eugene. So... I think the intimidation thing was what she had to get over, especially with the fact that she was very much injured by him. But once she got over that, well, the delay is he tried to delay the case for a long time. That's over now. He can't destroy her reputation or or besmirch her any like he can't. He already has defamed her a whole bunch. That's why she's there. So like it wasn't like he could hurt her anymore that way. And she wasn't going to get co-opted. So there's no way for him to get at her anymore. So she just had to get over that fear and then she was ready to go. You know, that's it. And then he's not invincible. He's not even close. Yeah. Before we go back, uh, you hit on something that I wanted to get into, which was this, the stonewalling and the delay. Mm -hmm. And that goes back forever. And I think that is, frankly, the most relevant element of all this today, you know, in, in mm-hmm. here, oh, this is probably February of 24, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of this other stuff, as you said, like that, you know, hits, we, we see that he doesn't have any clothes. We see that he's guilty, but he can delay and the clock is really ticking here. You know, the, the convention is in July, 60 or 90 day window. Is it possible for, at this point for Jack Smith, et cetera, to fight against the stonewalling and delaying tactics given the time constraints? You know, it is tough. There's no doubt. Like, we're very much under the gun now. He's doing it. Put it this way. There's the difference between him stonewalling and then there's the difference between him coming up with some BS legal argument that requires some other decision to be made. So let's separate those two things out. Stonewalling, he's kind of done it and it's over and you've actually gotten past that phase. That is really for in the investigatory phase where you're issuing subpoenas, so forth and so on. Like, They've already gotten everything. So we're great there. Like, I don't think that that's really where the problems are. Like, I think the feds and the state authorities have been able to get the witnesses and documents that they've needed to get. But then the next question is, like, is he going to be able to keep coming up with legal diversions that are going to help him run out the clock? That's where we are right now with the immunity issue going up before the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court. And I would argue with, because I believe he's part of it, the counterattacking against Fonnie Willis, I think, is trying to come up with some, it's both a counterattack and a delay tactic. 
to try to see if he can slow down that Georgia case. I think that with regard to Jack Smith and the January 6th case in D.C., I don't think it's going to succeed at delaying things very much. I hope that's true. I don't think that it's going to delay anything by more than maybe a couple of weeks. I think we're going to see the courts move fairly quickly to dispense with that immunity issue. But that's the really the biggest area where he's trying to run out the clock. And so we were looking at what, a March start before that, of yep. that case. And so if the Supreme Court you know, moves before that, then how quickly could they turn that around, do you think? Look, we're going to get oral arguments in a couple of weeks. And then how quickly do they turn a decision around? You know, famously in Bush v. Gore, they did it in about two days. Although I hope it's right up there, frankly. I hope that they can get it done in a couple of weeks, maybe less. Look, I still think that we're going to see oral arguments begin in the D.C. case by mid to late March. I do. I I think we're going to end up seeing a delay of only a couple of weeks. But maybe I'll end up being wrong. But that's where I still I I, I'm still hopeful that we could see that happen. I don't I think it's going to be weeks of delay, not months of delay. Your lips to God's ears. I, I want to go back because I think that um, you've been doing a lot and, and we have uh, the new hit podcast, George Conway Explains It All to Sarah Longwell, where they're discussing the minutia and the day-by-day of what's happening with these court cases. And so I thought it would be most interesting just to spend some time with you going back to where you first did successfully take on Trump, as <laughs> as subtly noted in the title of your book, <laughs> um, uh, which is the Trump University case. This was something that was, so as we were talking in the green room, you're like, you know, this hasn't really been the news for eight years, right? A, a lot of memories have lapsed. Yeah. I would even argue that a lot of people weren't educated about it to the degree they should have been. You know, back at that time, uh, when I was working on the anti-Trump super PAC in 2016, I was arguing for attacking him more on mm-hmm. the way that he screwed over regular people. You know, mm-hmm. and like it didn't yep. show up that well in polls, but I, you know, so this was just a gut thing, not a data thing for me. Yep. But I was just like, I think that's the way to get a chink in his armor. And Trump University was a prime example of this. And so it was like a little bit of a hobby horse for me in, inside Zoom meetings with, with you know, admin and in and, and Washington, D.C. So anyway, I yeah. wanted to kind of yeah. refresh everybody's memory because I, I do think it's still worth yeah. kind of talking about because it t- says a lot about Trump. So for those people who don't remember, can you just give a, a quick, like the Reader's Digest version of of what the case was and how you guys decided to bring it. Yeah, long story short is that Trump University was a basically a wealth creation seminar or you know motivational speaker upsell program wrapped in the gold veneer of the Trump brand. Uh, it was promising during the crash to help people invest in real estate, specifically how to invest in foreclosures and distressed properties, which itself is an interesting thing. They, a lot of the techniques that they were sharing were basically techniques to take advantage of, uh, of people that couldn't make their payments on their houses and so forth and so on. It was actually kind of predatory, more than a little predatory, but that's a different story. At the core of it, what they would do is they would say, hey, you're going to come. It's a bait and switch. Hey, you're, we're going to teach you everything you need to know about real estate. Then you'd get to that program that you paid $1,500 for, and they would say, oh, no, 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 you're not ready for that. You need a mentor. Now we're going to upsell you on a $15,000 to $35,000 program 
the Trump elite programs. They had a gold and a silver and a bronze. And You need a mentor. This kind of reminds me of the Osage thing. We had David Grant on this podcast. Yeah. Have you seen that movie? It's like, oh, you need a guardian, rich Osage yes. uh, native. Yeah. You, then you got to pay us. Then you need to go up to that level. And then you got to that level. And, you know, and there's a lot of scams that work this way, right? You get upsold to like, oh, don't worry, those secrets we've been promising you, those are through the next door. You just have to pay one more time. So they get through that next door and there's still nothing there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there were other things too. Trump uh, supposedly had handpicked the, the instructors. He didn't know them. He had no role in picking them. It was supposedly Trump's secrets for how to invest in real estate. Uh, it had nothing of the sort. You know, the curriculum was actually created by a company that made other wealth creation seminar programming as well as timeshare rental uh, hard sales. Fun fact. The instructors were not real estate experts in any way, shape or form. And then to top it all off, you know, they did fun things like say Donald Trump was going to be there. And then the next day you got to go take a picture with a cardboard cutout of him which I think is actually a good microcosm for exactly how Trump University worked. So this was a whole scam thing that they did for about three years. Sadly, it was very uh, successful. They conned $42 million out of about 6,000 people. And this was in like the early 2010s then or the late? This was 2007 to 2010 was the height of it. Uh, So then we, we weren't the only ones, by the way, and I covered this in the book. This also crossed the desks of authorities in Texas and Florida, who ultimately did nothing about it. And interestingly, then those AGs got uh, well-timed campaign checks from yeah, Bondi Trump. Was, Bondi was Florida. Bondi the, the and Greg part. Abbott. Greg Abbott. Abbott was the other one. He was AG of Texas at the time. We uh, And then there was a, a private civil class action that was running into some headwinds. Then we came in with our suit starting in 20. We started our investigation in 2011. We filed our suit in 2013. Long story short, after all of that was, uh, we were all about, both cases were due to go to trial. The trials got pushed until after the 2016 election, but were slated to happen in the kind of like period between Thanksgiving and Christmas in 2016. Then Trump wins the election and he finally caves and we settle the cases globally the two cases together for 25 million dollars and that all went back to the consumers pretty much so mo- of of the people who got ripped off the people who put in claims in that settlement they got paid back a little over 90% of what they were uh, of what was taken from them I want to put a pin in the payments because I want to come back to that it's relevant yep. to the modern day but um so when you guys were deciding to take up the case yeah was there political pushback? Did you was there internal pushback? Like what was your what was that experience like? Yeah, so a lot of the book is about this. So it, that's really where I can go into it in greater depth. But the the short version is we had both the stonewalling from the Trump people, where right. they refused to give us a lot of documents that they in all likelihood had, and in some cases I know they had but we couldn't get them from them. We had to go get a lot of those documents from third parties. And that's, there's a whole, one of the rules in the book talks about that, about going, you know, you got to get creative, but also go to his vendors and business partners that he has also shortchanged and not paid because those people can become your allies. That was one of the ways that we broke open the case. So we got resistance from Trump. Then we also had to fight resistance in our own office, particularly from the AG at the time, Eric Schneiderman, who was definitely on the fence about whether or not to bring the case. 
And unfortunately, it meant it caused a lot of delays in our bringing the case, delays that almost really sunk us because of some statute of limitations issues that I also talk about. And finally, after a whole series of events, we were able to convince him and also the Trump people screwed up a little bit. Long story short then was that he decided to go for it finally. You know, we had to, in the meantime, we had accumulated this mountain of evidence. So we, right. we, we really had, we had them. Uh, so it wasn't really about the merits. Like, why were we waffling? It wasn't about the merits. It was about the political fallout or the willingness or unwillingness of Schneiderman to take on a high profile target like that with all of the counterattacks and unpleasantness that that would bring. Yeah, you might get a nickname. Who knows? Um, that Who knows, point, right? Still yeah, tweeting. You, and it wasn't about politics, though, per se, because right. at that point, it's 2012, 2013. He's a tabloid figure. He's a tabloid figure. He is doing the birther thing by that point. That's true. But he's not a candidate for office yet. So it's not some sort of like effort to like take him out and stop him from running. Nobody thought that he would credibly sure. run for president as anything more than a publicity stunt at that point in time. So it, it had virtually nothing to do about politics. It had everything to do with publicity and media and the fact that he would counterattack a whole bunch and turn the case into a quagmire, which it could have become, but ultimately didn't. Yeah. And one of the things here I'd read also is that uh, that was kind of interesting to me is like among the evidence that you gathered, vendors that got screwed over were kind of yeah. the key people, right? And yeah. I thought this was an interesting lesson about dealing with Trump, right? It was that he does screw people over and it's the way that he's not like the mob, right? He doesn't take care That's of his exactly people, right. you know? And That's so anyway, exactly talk, right. talk, talk about that. I want to talk about what the vendors kind of provided. Yeah, so, you know, you had some vendors that were corporates, right? And they're going to get, they're, they're not going to mess around. When a big corporation gets a subpoena as a custodian of records, i.e. they're not a witness, they're not a target, well, they, they're sort of a witness. They're not a target. It's not their fault. They didn't do anything. They just happen to have records that are salient and relevant to this investigation. They get a subpoena from the New York AG's office. They're going to call me back and say, like, uh, yeah, is a D you know, this was a while ago now. They'd be like, is it, you know, can I send you a DVD? You know, with the <laughs> it was that long ago now. Or, you know, or do you or, or do you want to is a DVD okay, or do you need to actually have the hard copy? Do you want us to print them out for you? And I said, whatever's easiest for you. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's what a big company is going to do. So there are plenty of things that we got just as a matter of course. We got our hands on bank records. We got our hands on HR records that Trump outsources everything. So all of this stuff, you know, like HR, background checks, whole bunch of th things like that, that was all outsourced. So we yeah. were able to get our hands on a bunch of that stuff. The big thing was getting then there were tapes. He had actually they had actually recorded a bunch of these seminar sessions mm -hmm. Uh because they were trying to optimize sales conversions, like how many people did you upsell? Yeah. What, was your, what was your percentage conversion rate? That's why they recorded them, not for quality control. It was for right. sales conversion rates. Uh, how many people did you con today? Okay, yeah, exactly. oh, that, was a, that was a good one. Let's, yeah, let's make con sure Con Artist of the Week goes. Award. Yeah, Con Artist of the Week Award goes to this guy, and we're going to make sure everybody do what he did, because he did a good job scamming those people. That was pretty much what they were doing. And so we... We knew they had a bunch of these. We had gotten five. That's all they produced, the Trump people. We were convinced that they had a lot more of these lying around, and they had transcribed them, and we knew it. The emails they did give us, which looked like nothing, did have some nuggets in there, and among them were figuring out who the vendors were, and critically, that this 
vendor that had done the transcripts had actually been underpaid when Trump University died and had never gotten his last invoice paid. Mm. And I brought it up when I talked to him and that was what got him to help us. He wasn't, I don't know if he was going to help us before that until I brought that up. And then all of a sudden it was like totally, total 180. And, and I love that story, did. but I also kind of hate it. Cause it's just like, this is the thing. I'm curious what your view is on this, on being at that time on the non-politics yeah. side, very much on the legal side. I was just convinced there would be salience to this, right? It's like, mm -hmm. it's like these are people that were, are desperate for money getting screwed over. This yeah. is like your vendor, the transcription vendor is I had a hundred, you know, if I had one of them, I had a hundred who called me at the yep. super PAC and was like, Trump didn't yep. pay me 200 bucks. And I was like, the, I, like there's no way folks are going to want to support this guy once they learn the way he screwed people over. So anyway, I was just mm -hmm. like, you guys had to be kind of talking about this internally, like, oh man, there's gonna be a lot of spotlight on this case now that he's running. Yep. And were you kind of surprised by the lack of salience? Or what did you just sort of think about the political side of it? So I wasn't at the office anymore by the time Trump ran for president. I yeah. left in 2014. And then my colleagues carried it on from there and handled the settlement. When I was at the AG's office in 2011, 2012, 2013, we would joke about what would happen if Trump ever ran for anything. Because as, as people may remember, he did flirt with it briefly right. in 2012. Yeah. He thought about running in the Republican primary that Blue year. Blue to New Hampshire? And yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah, he did some stuff. CPAC? And then finally, there was a sort of like, he made it like it was a big deal that he had finally decided to endorse Mitt Romney right. and made Romney like come to meet him. Oh, yeah. It was a whole thing. And uh, anyhow, we would joke about it. We would we, basically the joke was like, well, he'll never get anywhere because there's all this. We thought it would be salient. You're right. Like yeah. we thought that with all of this and the, the divorces, the bankruptcies, everything, we just thought that once everything came out about him, that there was no way that he would get through a Republican primary. And also, it's not exactly like he's Mr. Family Values, which is still just that's one of the ones that still just like completely blows my mind is that that man with all of the things he's done personally is somehow, you know, a lot of folks who are very religious and conservative and, and traditional somehow consider him a champion just blows my mind all, all the time. So we just we, we would joke about it. Not that we never thought he'd actually be right. a candidate for anything, except maybe for like like he did in 2012. It's like, oh, he'll flirt about it because it's a great way for him to get his name in the news. Sure. We never thought he'd actually run as anything more than a publicity stunt. So, yeah, I would think and I still think I still think to this day that if more people knew about this, that it would still be salient for people because I don't because he tries to be this guy who's the champion of the common people. And if more folks realized what he has done, his track record of what he has done every time he does in, encounter a quote unquote common person, it is to find a way to knife them. Yeah. And if they are coming in for a hug, so to speak, because they love him, all the better for him to stab them. These were <laughs> Trump super fans. These yes. were the Trump University people. And I mean, the, the, the vendors here and there kind of, a lot of them have been though. Like if you go look at the whole history of like people that were vendors for like the New Jersey casinos and stuff right. like that, these were people who really, really wanted to work with Trump specifically and, and pitched to get to work with him. 
back to the Trump University students, these people were definitely 100% hardcore. They loved The Apprentice. They adored him. They thought he was the most successful, richest business person in America, which has never been true. But literally, even when I talked to them and they knew they'd been ripped off, they would still, in my phone calls with them, I, I would ask them, well, why did you want to go in the first place? Why did you go to Trump University? And the answer included often things like, well, you know, he's the richest guy in New York. And it's like, no, no, he's not, not even close. Oh, he's the biggest real estate guy in New York. No, no, he's not, not even close. Like, you know, but these were his biggest fans. And his response was, let me pick my pocket and see if I can stab him while I'm at it. Yeah, fucking 15 grand, richest guy in the city. Got to, you know, try to make five grand off of people. Well, they also had the big lie that he was going to give all the money to charity. Yeah. They would say that too, which, uh, which was definitely not true. He made a personal profit in Trump University of about five million bucks off of initial investment of two, three million. Yeah, part of me wants to do a focus group with the people that got screwed over by Trump University, but part of me doesn't think my heart could take it. Okay, I, I yeah. want to ask you about the money that they got back, though. Mm-hmm. This is important. Every time I interview about anybody about any of these things, are they actually going to get their money or actually going to get their money? These people got their money. They did. Let, let's talk about how that happened, and then I want to project it out to E. Jean Carroll and the other civil cases sure. happening now. Yeah, so the kicker there was that once it was a settlement, then we didn't have to worry about an appeals process. Like he, act, he, he wanted to avoid trial. He had two trials going. It was going to be one with the New York AG's office in Manhattan and another one in uh, federal court in San Diego. Fun side note is that was the case that yielded the that Mexican judge rant from, from yeah, Trump Curiel. during the 2016 election. Judge Curiel, that's right. And... Um, he wanted to avoid those trials, so he settled. The settlement then just had to be approved by the judge, which it was in March of 2017. And then at that point, you do in any kind of settlement situation like that, or or, or sometimes if it's if it is a judgment in the consumer protection world, then you do you have a claims administrator, uh, and that's the vendor that then you know figures out all the money. And many of you listening to this may have had this experience right now. There's a big one going on now with Verizon, although there's some murkiness about whether or not it's actually going to get approved fully finally finally you get emails about am it. I get, am i getting any cash out of this it's Christmas? actually it's actually unsure i put in a claim uh <laughs> i put in a claim for me i put in a claim for my wife and now I, I was reading some things that make it sound like it might not be done yet in terms of whether or not that settlement's going to happen so stay tuned but anyhow when these if things you think happen, it's going to happen let me know and i'll fill out know, the paperwork I I've, I've been i've, <laughs> I've been stalling when these, when these things happen you fill out a form yeah it's kind of like publishers where you know they come with yeah. a big check and i'm like right. do i really is, sign is this actually going to happen do i do i do i should i get excited yet uh the answer is i don't know but with this it's like no it's not just a hundred bucks this was people getting you know you know 10 15 20 25 30 35 thousand dollars back and uh and the people who put in claims by it, like, yeah, it was like, it was over 90% is what they got back. So, uh, so that was a really, really great outcome. You know, one thing that deserves a lot of credit is the law firm, uh, the, the, the lawyers that did the private class action suit decided to waive taking fee. So they didn't take their third of the money uh, as they could have, uh, which was really, really wonderful of them to do. Obviously, you know, it was, uh, you know, definitely looked good optically for them, but gosh, that was, you know, a really great thing that helped get a lot more people, more of their money back. A wonderful thing when a state AG does a case like this is that they don't take any money. Um, so they certainly weren't paying it to the to the state uh, AGs. Uh, but he was liquid <laughs> enough. Office, I guess that's like the big question. He was liquid enough for you to get this cash. Aha! No, he was not. He took out a loan. 
<laughs> so, I mean, I guess that's liquidity. Debt is, it's just, you know, it's not profits. Let's Who just gave them the like, loan? Deutsche Bank? Oh, no, it was Ladder Capital, I want to say, without having my notes in front of me, but I think that's correct. Uh, but he got a, it was not Deutsche Bank, I think it was Ladder, and that was where he, he actually had to take out a loan to pay that $25 million in 2017. That takes us to the present day. Yes. So we have this $83.3 million payment to Eugene Carroll. I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. I spoke with Robbie uh, this week, We just, just to congratulate her. And, and one thing that she mentioned was she doesn't know that he's got the cash to pay a bond, right? So even if he appeals this, uh, so you, you're, you're the expert, but my understanding, a uh, layman's understanding is even in an, if you appeal a, a judgment of that degree, there's 20%, I guess, 15, 20%, you still have to pay as a bond. You have to put it up. To put yep. it up to appeal, right? So yes, that's correct. In this case, you're talking about 17 million, give or take 15 to 17 million, somewhere in that range that he's going to have to yep. put up even an appeal, that's yep. a lot of cashish. And then, and then we've got the other simple case, which I'll get to next. Uh, yep. but like what, so I know you don't know his, his finances, but like what is your sense of that? And, and also, and secondarily, does the fact that he's exaggerated his wealth so much, that has to be a factor here in whether or not they're going to make him pay it. Well, I'll say one thing is that the exaggerations of his wealth. So all of these exaggerations and boasting about his wealth and the fraudulent financial statements and all of that, hurts him a, in a, it hurts him bigly in a big big way when it comes to things like this Eugene Carroll case because that jury had to be sitting there like he keeps bragging about how much money he has so it's not like it had to have been a factor right. if he had been coming in pleading poverty trust me that number probably would have been a little bit would have been a, probably a good bit lower I don't think he did himself any favors every time he opens his yap to talk about how wealthy he is he is kind of setting himself up to fail in a jury situation like this but that's a you know bit of a side note can he pay it now even just a bond to put up say 20% i suspect that that'll probably also be debt you know it's possible that he'll take it from someplace else but here's something that's an interesting data point here though is that you know we we heard about this a couple months ago in the New York AG civil fraud case, he violated the court order that said that any money in Trump in the Trump organization, that all the assets of the Trump organization, including cash, uh, were going to be under the watch of a court-appointed monitor, and that there couldn't be mo moving money or assets into or out of the Trump organization uh, without involving that monitor. And what did Trump do? He did exactly that. He took $40 million in cash out of the Trump organization and used it to pay a $29 million tax liability from the, mm -hmm. to the federal government. And he also, and then he also used it to put up the money for the last year's settlement in the Eugene Carroll, uh, ver, uh, pardon me, judgment in the Eugene Carroll case number one. Right. So he already was robbing Peter to pay Paul for that one and doing it literally all the places he could get money from, all of his so supposedly successful businesses, all of the people who would lend money to him supposedly because he's such a great creditworthy person, he claims. Of all the places he could have gotten cash from, he went to the one bucket that had somebody from a court watching over it and took it from that. I think that tells you a lot about his cash situation. Like, I don't know when he needed that $40 million last year, was he unable to borrow it? I think there's a very valid question as to whether or not maybe he tried to borrow that and he couldn't because at some point here, this is going to add up to 
in potentially being illiquid and not somebody that can that can borrow more money. Um, and then and then we have the New York AG case, which is, I think where you're headed next about like what ramifications that could very soon have uh, and may already be apparent by the time uh, we air here. Yeah. The borrowing thing does seem real. Like it does seem like he's oh, struggling to problem. find people. Yeah. To loan him at this point. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, he was blackballed by every major bank in the U.S. as of the mid 90s because of the casinos. Right. Uh, and all the overbuilding generally, a lot of the thought was that he had just gone way above and beyond his means to pay for everything with all the building that he did in New York during the 80s and early 90s. And then, you know, overbuilding, because part of the problem was, and people have written about this a good bit, David K. Johnston among them, that it wasn't just that, you know, this is he's such a great businessman. He did a casino in, in Atlantic City, was initially successful. So what did he do? He built three more all right near each other, practically yeah. in a row. And it's like, you know, there's this thing called cannibalizing where you don't want to actually have your businesses right on top of each other. You don't see four McDonald's in a row. <laughs> it wouldn't work that way. Even though, in the irony, I'm sorry, Tristan, not- you've not read Art of the Deal. Okay, I don't, I don't know. That <laughs> Apparently you've missed. The only person who would go to all four McDonald's is probably, but like most of the rest of us would not go to all yeah. four of them. All of a sudden, the sales for all of them would be would look terrible, right? He put four of them all in a row. Anyhow, he overbuilt and he overdid it and he was just completely overextended. And so U.S. banks wouldn't lend to him anymore by the mid-90s. So that's why he started working with these European banks who were desperate to enter the U.S. market and were looking for people to work with. And so once they got their hands on Trump, Deutsche Bank and, and others were just like, here, have money, have money, have money, because they really, really wanted to work with high-profile U.S businesses. Right. Uh, and so they worked with Trump thinking he's high profile, credit risk, oh, whatever, we'll probably make money on it. And maybe they have. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because the marketplace got defrauded. It's not just whether Deutsche Bank feels like it got defrauded. In a way, Deutsche Bank also probably has some Stockholm syndrome slash Deutsche Bank may not feel so good so soon, you know, because I think that a lot of these uh, buildings are not necessarily going to be generating a lot of money for Deutsche Bank coming up. But yeah, it's, it's a mess. Is he going to be able to find more banks abroad that will lend to him? Will he find more alternative other sources of capital? It then opens the door to the possibility that he's going to get, find sources of capital that are expecting him to do something in return. Right. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, especially if he were to return to the White House or maybe he has some other bathroom at Mar-a-Lago that has documents the FBI wasn't able to recover. Who knows? We have no idea. Or maybe there's some of them at Bedminster. We don't know. But at any rate, it raises a lot of questions, both legally and politically. It does. It does. Yeah. I want to get to the fraud thing really quick. Uh, and I'm, you know, I have Trump derangement syndrome, so I've never wanted to defend Trump. But this is my one case where I'm like, I mean, if he defrauded Deutsche Bank, is it that big of a deal? Like, I mean, if he lied, like, should, wasn't it their job? And so this is why this is why I'm interested in this Trump mm-hmm. civil case. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm curious in your views, what is the pushback to that on the merits of the law? And and then what are the potential ramifications for that case? That yeah. it seems orders of magnitude greater than the E.J. and Carroll case as financially. Look, I think that when you have these fraud statutes on the books, it's a statutory fraud. So let, let, we'll put aside for a second the idea that like, okay, 
if Deutsche Bank felt defrauded, wouldn't they be able to do something? And if they didn't, that means it was okay. Deutsche Bank, like any lender, has the ability to go after a creditor for what's considered common law fraud. So a business can sue another business for fraud, but that's a different legal claim than the statutory fraud case that the AG's office brought. Uh, they that laws on the books, and I think it's and it's been, and those kind of laws have been on the books for you know almost a century. In one way or another, New York was one of the pioneers in laws like that, but most states have various laws like this on the books now. Uh, and there are federal laws on the books about this, and it also has cousins and like false advertising laws and so forth and so on. But if you think about this from like a business to business fraud perspective, there's both a liberal and a conservative argument that actually interestingly kind of overlap a good bit about why this is important. I think that the liberal thought is going to be, well, they don't necessarily know that they've been victimized, but they have been victimized, you know, blah, 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 you know, that something along those lines. I think there's sort of a like market conservative uh, defense of laws like that too, which is you need to have trust in order to have a marketplace function with parties who don't know each other in a complex society. If you don't have that, the system breaks down. So you can't basically have it be open season on being able to put things in writing that are complete fabrications. And just because you put a little bit of fine print on it that says, don't believe these, that should not be enough to get your way out of being able to then commit as many frauds and misrepresentations as you want. When these laws were traditionally passed and upheld, it wasn't just by people that we would consider to be on the left. A lot of it was folks that were very much free market conservatives. That's a lot of where the initial impetus for a lot of these laws came from. And I think we should still view them very much in that light, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum. I think there's a very good argument for why those kind of laws need to exist and why they should be enforced, even when the bank that got you know snowed here isn't squawking. It shouldn't matter. At the end of the day, the plaintiff is actually not Deutsche Bank. It's the people of the state of New York. And we can't have the marketplace or society as, as a whole get victimized by this kind of rampant lying. Fair enough. And um, do you have a sense, just again, seeing this, this is New York versus Trump, uh, you have experience there, like what, like the degree to which the judgments could land against him here? So I think that by the end of this week, Judge Angoran, I think, is going to keep, I, I have every reason to expect he'll keep his promise. He said he would get us a judgment uh, based on the trial that was just held by the end of January. So I believe that by by the time everybody's hearing this, we're going to have a judgment that's issued probably from, from, the, from the court in New York. And I expect that to be, I think it's going to be definitely in excess of 200 million. And I think it could be 400 million or more. The AG's office has asked for 370 million. It's possible that Angoron's math comes in under that, but I don't think it's going to be that he suddenly does it by an order of magnitude and says, like, oh, I'm only going to give $37 million. Uh, and, and what is this? This is in restitution. The, the calculation is based on, based on the lies that Trump told in these financial statements. He had loans that were given to him on more favorable terms than he would have had he told the truth. And the delta, the difference between what he had to pay the bank versus what he should have had to pay the bank in interest, in points, in, 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 et cetera, et cetera. That's the difference there. So that's how much that he took. And it's considered to be a disgorgement, effectively, of ill-gotten gains. Like this was money that he effectively had that he didn't have to pay back, uh, that he got as a, as a the, 
unwanted the, benefit. The process then for the state actually garnishing that those funds then is what? He has another appeal, I assume? He would then have another appeal. And we remember on this that this was where we already had summary judgment late last year in which Judge Angoron said that there was liability for fraud. So the first question is, is he liable for fraud, yes or no? The answer is yes. The trial was mostly about math and some other uh, secondary issues. The other big thing that the, that the judge already gave summary judgment for was to say that the cancellation of the corporate charters uh, was warranted. That is a provision in this statutory fraud uh, law that's called Executive Law 6312, has a provision that when you have a repeat offender, basically, if you have repeated and systematic fraud and illegality, that the businesses in question can have their corporate licenses revoked. Uh, and at that point, they're put out of business and the assets for those businesses can be put into receivership, same as it would be in a bankruptcy. So the control gets stripped and then the assets can get liquidated and then the money gets paid to, you know, it's not like they're getting taken from Trump entirely. If the, if the debt gets paid off those buildings uh, first, the creditors get paid off first, anything that's left over will be handed to Trump, but then he won't be allowed to have these businesses in New York anymore and they're also asking, the AG's office is asking uh, for additional ban on Trump being able to open any new businesses in New York going forward. And I can talk about that a good bit, but I do think it's warranted in this case. Well, that would be quite the shame. Um, we're gonna have to, we'll be circling back on that maybe with you uh, over with our friend George Conway. I, I want to get to two other things really quick. Um, uh, you've just been so hot on Alina Haba lately. I just kind of want to let you cook. I just want to. Let, I just want to give you one minute. And just let you cook on on her. Uh, on you know her jurisprudence, <laughs> her work, her lawyering. Yeah, her body of work here, her sort of legal you know portfolio, as it were. Yeah. So the kicker here is, you know, I don't mean to pick on her so much, but on the other hand, the things that she's been doing are so obvious and and you know have been front and center lately. You know, she was there for the New York AG case. You know, she was one of the lead counsel on that one. And now she was also for this case with Eugene Carroll. And the number of the things that she did here were just doozies, especially if we go back to the first Eugene Carroll case from last year. I talk about this in great detail in my book in the context of if you have, if you actually go against Trump and now you're going, you've gone public and you brought your case, you're going to expect to get kind of a, clown car of lawyers and crazy legal arguments, a lot of which are diversions. Um, you need to not focus on a lot of the distractions and diversions, focus on your case, focus on the signal, not the noise, and wait for them to make a mistake. Because at the end of the day, he kind of has a revolving door of lawyers. He doesn't like to spend top dollar for his lawyers. Sit back and wait. And I think Robbie Kaplan in the Eugene Carroll case clearly understood that that's what was going on there. And I think the AG's office has been content to sit back and wait for things to happen there. You know, Haba or other people with her were the ones that infamously didn't check off the box on the form to get a jury. Rather, instead, they ended up with a bench trial with Judge Angoron, who already had lost his patience with Trump for Oops. refusing to comply with subpoenas in the investigatory phase of that matter. So that's fun. Also, Trump really needed a jury because that gives him more opportunity to manipulate people and try to, to sway him over to his side. He doesn't want a bench trial. He wants a jury to work with. Uh, so that was a terrible mistake or an oversight. We're not really sure which. Uh, uh, Haba also initially started off by trying to have Trump and Eric and Don Jr. try to plead the fifth 
in that civil fraud case. That was a bad look. Shouldn't have done that. That was not that was not a good idea. Um, also, I just don't think Trump was ready for what Robbie Kaplan did to him in the deposition in the E. Jean Carroll case. Uh, I don't know if Trump was prepared for what hit him in that. Hmm. He should have been prepared to do better when he got shown the Access Hollywood tape that was played for him right. during his sworn deposition. And rather than have a good stock answer ready to like dismiss it, try to say, oh, you know, like he did in the 2016 case, I think Kellyanne Conway had managed to get him to say, oh, it's it's just locker room talk. Right. I didn't mean that. Blah, blah, blah. Don't take me literally. And I, and I shouldn't have said it, blah, blah, blah. That's what he tried to do. To, that's what he did. To He successfully managed to tamp that down enough that it didn't tank his campaign. He gets under oath with Haba as his lawyer right there. And that's when he made the infamous comments about, uh, you know, stars historically being able to assault women. Right. Just like, oh, my, like, how were you not better prepared for that question? You had to know that Kaplan was going to play that tape. You had to be ready to, to have him have a prepared answer to try to get past that question uh, or that series of questions. And she just didn't. So, you know, yes, I spend a lot of time uh, sort of, you know, dragging Alina Haba. However, I am very thankful for Alina Haba because <laughs> I think that she may, in fact, be doing the Lord's work here, even if she doesn't realize it. So thanks, Alina. All right, that's that was what I was hoping for. All right, I've got one more out of left field for you, but because you're a legal expert, um, we have a we have a big RICO case kind of happening, potential yeah. RICO case with, uh, I guess, the NFL, Joe Biden, uh, mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they've all been conspiring together to to ensure that the Chiefs win the Super Bowl and mm-hmm. and and go after MAGA. Do you think this is is there something here for any AGs, any red state oh, AGs to look into? You know, I don't know what kind of evidence you need to open up a case, but since you have some experience there, just keep digging. Maybe you'll find it eventually. <laughs> uh, you know, and of course, it's an interesting thing to say that it's somehow all destroying the sport of football. I'm I'm a huge football fan, but destroying the, the, the game of football to make the ratings so good. Like, yeah. come on, the NFL is making money. Hand, everybody's making money hand over fist on this one. And somehow that's a bad thing. I mean, it, this is all just so serious. It's definitely so, not the Patrick. I mean, Patrick Mahomes has only been in the Super Bowl four out of six years. It's, def- it's definitely, not, it's his definitely not the best quarterback of his generation doing best quarterback of his generation things. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's clearly the nefarious and diabolical influence of Taylor Swift. Of it's a conspiracy. It All right, it well, it's a well, giant conspiracy. AG's out there, John Afkoff's kid in Missouri, whatever. Uh, you guys just keep looking into this one. Maybe you'll find something. All right, my final thing for you, Tristan. Uh, you talk in the book about, and, and we always get this question from people, how can voters and activists you know, kind of engage and be supportive and, 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 and holding prosecutors accountable and just, and make sure, you know, so, so just talk a little bit about that uh, before I, before I lose you. Yeah. You know, part of the point of the book is to provide a bit of a citizen's guide for everybody to figure out like, look, what can we do as private citizens to make a difference with this? And a lot of times feels like these prosecutors are up on a pedestal and that there's nothing we can do except get on social media and get upset about it. Actually, guess what? getting on social media and getting upset about it, I believe, in fact, did make a difference um, because everybody else in the media looks at what's going on in social media and what's resonating. It really did create a lot of firestorm and a lot of political like force that got created. The January 6th committee 
represented a, uh, you know, why I wish it had been more bipartisan, but it was at least a little bit bipartisan effort to and, and represented a political force in this country that wanted to see accountability, that wanted to see that us get to the bottom of it, regardless of where that led. If it led all the way to the top, great. Let the chips fall where they may. Let's follow the facts, follow the law, and let's see where that takes us. And finally, DOJ had to do it too. They really had been, I think, pushed in that direction by the political force that was brought to bear by a whole lot of us talking and yelling and kicking and screaming and advocating for this to happen. And it, it was manifested by the committee. The committee then did its part to shine a light on these things. It got a lot more media attention. It snowballed and snowballed. As the Washington Post reported, DOJ and the FBI sat on the idea of going after Trump and his inner circle for over a year in 2021 and 2022. It was only once we started getting those televised hearings of the J6 committee in 2022 and the brave testimony from a lot of folks who came forward like that. I think Cassidy Hutchinson's probably the one who deserves maybe the most credit for that, for how riveting that was. It made a huge difference. And then it resulted in uh, Jack Smith being appointed special counsel. The other example I point to in the book is with uh, the Manhattan DA's office and Alvin Bragg. I think that the firestorm that was unleashed when he dropped the criminal investigation against Trump then led to it being revived a year later. So I, I think that when people get upset about these things uh, and then call their members of Congress and so forth and so on, it does make a difference. I really do. And we, at the end of the day, yes, we have to elect good people and brave, courageous people to be in these roles. But then that's not enough. We actually have to keep, you know, they are there to hold bad guys accountable. And they're they're the good guys that are supposed to do that. We need to make sure that we hold the good guys accountable as citizens. I appreciate that so much, man. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Hope Absolutely. you're enjoying your media tour. Taking down Trump. 12 rules for prosecuting Donald Trump by somebody who did it successfully. Tristan Snell, keep in touch. Uh, doors always open here at the Bulwark. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Tim. Anytime. <laughs> 